Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Today, I have the pleasure of having an open, candid, fun conversation with uh, Dr. Corin Dempsey, who is Professor and Chair in Religious Studies at uh, the Religious Studies Department at Nazareth University. We'll be touching on um, some fascinating facets of her explorations in study of religion. Corinne, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here. Thank you, Raj. It's great to be here. We were just, uh, you know, as as you may gather, my audience may uh, may gather, I, I chat uh, a few minutes before we get rolling and then a few minutes after and, you know, just to make sure they survived and all that. And typically they describe me as user-friendly, so typically they do well. Um, uh, we were just now chatting about, of all things, personality types and uh Corinne says you know I think you know I think we might have some stuff in common I, I thought to myself are you an ENFP and she's like yes um so apparently um apparently I I was uh, right yeah well so am I apparently so we're both yeah. ENFPs so there you go I'm not sure how either of us became scholars if we're ENFPs but and especially how I became right. a textual scholar that's right you're right <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, I'm not sure about that. I think I have to uh, funnel my 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 ethnographic uh, impulses into the podcast. Is what I've done actually. So tell us how you got to study religion. How did that journey begin for you? Okay. Yes, you warned me that this would be um, this would be a question. It's. I'll try to make it um, sort of short because uh, it's not. Um, so it never is. <sighs> I think I think you know the question about why people end up uh, pursuing the study of religion is always interesting because I think it's it's a odd topic and loaded in so many different ways. So um, yeah, I initially I think if, if we shorten it a little bit, I was thinking that I would be good at sort of working as a therapist um, because I people come to me with their problems and I, I don't mind listening to them typically. So what I did in college while I was kind of on that route is I worked in um, a crisis center and people were having crises. And the problem with that is that it, it um, kind of freaked me out. <laughs> I mean, these were, anyway, it wasn't a good, it probably wasn't the right uh, way of sort of measuring my interest in the field. So I ended up um, backing out of it and deciding that maybe because I've always been interested in religion, if I were to be like a spiritual, um, you know, sort of doing counseling within a spiritual framework, it might be better. So I went, I was at the Graduate Theological Union at Berkeley um, to get my master's in theological studies. And probably the first semester I was there, got really excited about theological studies. So I ended up getting my master's in theology, focusing on liberation theologies, um, feminist, Latin American, Marxist type theologies, and writing my uh, master's thesis on the Virgin Mary as a sort of feminist 
um, liberationist icon, uh, which she is in Latin America and can be if feminists um, read her in a particular way. So getting excited about a female figure as an icon for progressive religious movements, I thought, okay, now I want to keep going. And where do I go to find female icons uh, who are um, religiously endorsed and where else but India in terms of living, um, you know, tradition. So I ended up applying to different places and getting to, into Syracuse where I was able to do what I wanted because they have a very open sort of template. So at Syracuse, uh, I ended up um, finding out that with my theology background, I had better stick to Christianity in India. That would be best if I'm going to get um, money to go. So I stuck to that, ended up um, going to Kerala and having um, sort of ethnographical work uh, in the realm of Christian pilgrimage to a woman who's being canonized and Sister Alfonso is her name. Uh, and so I wrote my first book on her sort of cult and the intersections of Hinduism and Christianity in Kerala through that lens, but then started finding other saints and, and, and sort of entities where you see those same intersections. So that got me to that place, bringing my husband and kids along who were at that point four and six years old. And then coming home, so I bounced around, that's why it's a long answer. So coming home then and figuring out what to do next, I realized um, when my kids are a little bit older, I couldn't leave them behind because it freaked me out when they were a little bit older to do more work in India. So I stayed home and found the temple in Rush as a place where there was, again, sort of progressive uh, sort of approach to uh, the practice of Hinduism because the guru there was teaching women um, to do the very high Trivija Brahmanic usually secretive um, practices. So that was a great place to spend time and write another book. And then I ended up in Iceland <laughs> because I had good friends who were at the married student housing with me um, in Syracuse from Iceland who would joke, come to Iceland, study us. And I ended up, um, it was a joke, you know, because they're Lutheran and they don't go to church. So, you know, that's not much fun. And then when my friend Solvay, who's Icelandic, stayed with us uh, at, um, in Wisconsin for a while, she and I, you know, joking about this, she woke up one morning and said, you know, I know what you can do. You can come to Iceland and talk to the people who talk to dead people. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's interesting. It's not something I've ever really pursued. I've never really felt comfortable with mediums. I wonder if they're maybe manipulative, you know, and preying on people's, um, on their vulnerabilities for money. Anyway, so I went there, found this incredible community, very different than how we do things here. So wrote a book on them. Um, so it, it's really been a bouncing thing. And you said, um, Raj, a minute ago, before you turned on the, the speaker, uh, that a lot of what you've done is, is not on purpose. And I think a lot of what I've done is not on purpose either. I've just sort of been bandied about. And so my current um, project, which is on older women, um, women over the age of 80 across the, the world, working with the populations that I know, that was my mom's idea, who wanted to, you know, stop me from traveling all over, just stay here. And after she moved into a retirement home, you know, a community, she said, why don't you talk to these fascinating women here? 
And I thought, well, that's a great idea. So I did that, but then also have spent time in Iceland and Kerala, South India, um, interviewing women there as well as the Sisters of St. Joseph. Um, so I'm learning things as I go, and it's been a very crooked path, um, which I've um, I've really enjoyed. So, so that's how right. I got into it. <laughs> it's always about the journey to my mind. Yep. It's always about, it's always about the scenic route. The questions I ask on this podcast, and they're typically pertaining to a particular monograph, but they will literally, they will be <laughs> purposely life questions like, you know, so what's your data? So, okay, Gandhi, who's that? You know, maybe not quite who's Gandhi, but along those lines. Right. And you never know what'll come in that moment. And it's, the questions are always meant to be generative because, you know, to my mind, a trip is planned. A journey is never planned. Right. And so a life journey, right. you know, the, the, the old uh, adage, what um, we plan and God laughs or goddess yeah. <laughs> or whomever. Right. And so sometimes you have to just put your sail up and uh, catch the wind and allow the elements to do the rest. And sometimes you have the best adventures in that way. Sounds like you've yep. lived a life. And, and I even lines. tell, I say that to my students, if you try to force a thesis, it, it won't be alive at all. I mean, I think that's especially true when you do ethnography, you can't force what you think is going to happen because then you don't learn anything. So yeah, you have to be bandied about a bit, depending on your comfort level, for sure. So there, there are so many tantalizing threads in what you talked about, and, and uh, we will touch upon... Um, you know, this, this goddess who lives upstate New York and these Icelandic mediums and all that. But ethnography, why ethnography? I've joked so many times, like, I, you know, I didn't even realize you could get credit for like having conversations and learning from people. That was, a way of, that was a way of life for me. And I had to shut that off to be a good student and study text. And it took me a while to realize, oh my God, I could actually have talked to people and learned that way and gotten credit for it. Um, but, but anyhow, in your case, why ethnography? Yeah, yeah. I mean, isn't that interesting? Because um, I know, and I, I may be jumping ahead, but you were one of the questions because I asked you, okay, what kinds of things will we be talking about so I can start thinking? And you mentioned, how have you seen the field change? Um, you know, because I'm ancient <laughs> and I can talk about the field changing. I don't know, but because um, <clears throat> you don't ask that, of, of course, of Cause, everyone. Because you, uh, you, you, help, you help them build the pyramids, you help yeah. them build the pyramids, I'm sure. But, so. yes. but I, I do, I mean, one thing I can say and I will answer your question, if I can remember what it was once I'm done, uh, <laughs> is that when I entered the field, it was assumed that we would learn Sanskrit and work textually. And, and I, I was game for it, but I ended up doing a lot of my coursework through the anthropology department. And then my advisor uh, in the religious studies department at Syracuse ended up being Ann Gold who um, trained in anthropology and works in, in religious studies. So I was able, yay, to do exactly what you're saying. What we love to do is talk to people. And as you say, get credit for it. So what a, what a gift. I was the first person at Syracuse to, to have done that in the religious studies department. Um, and now it's, it's kind of mainstream, you know? So I think I just got really lucky because it is what I like to do. And I remember having a grant um, to go off, even to, even to, oh my gosh, conferences and just so excited about someone's giving me money to talk to people. But the same thing, you know, going to, to India on grants, um, it's what I love to do. And as someone who was planning on being originally a counselor, I, I'm someone who for some reason people open up, 
you know, for, I don't know why. Um, this is, this is fascinating. You know. Perhaps it's a function of, of, uh, you know, the way, whatever it's, perhaps it's a function of being ENFP or who knows what, but without question, the vast majority of people that I interact with in, in my personal life and probably even my professional life have shared something with me that no one or next to no one knows about them. Uh, typically unsolicited, we will we'll just talk and just for some reason, I don't know, who knows? I don't drug people. I don't hypnotize them. I promise. <laughs> I'm not even particularly nosy or inquisitive. I mean, I'm curious about yeah. their lives, but I'm not really, right. you know, minutia me, whatever. Well, you know, yeah. let's talk about ideas. But, um, right. but, it's, but it but, is but, a gift, right? I mean, a gift to us. I'm not saying a gift that we're giving them. I'm not at all, at all saying that. I'm saying what a gift to be able to receive yes. and, and to be honored by hearing things, and especially if you're talking about religion, that have such deep significance and impact. On people. I, I've, I've said this probably on the podcast, but in, in, with friends, I say, look, it doesn't matter what my degrees say. You know, yes, I love story. I love narrative. I love literature. I love Sanskrit culture. I mean, clearly, like, you know, religious studies is a good fit in many ways. Um, but I said, the thing that I know the best in this world, hands down, is people. I've never really formally studied, but people I can almost always predict a mile away trends, people. I don't know what it is. It's just, I mean, I love people and I've listened and listened and learned. They tell me so many things I never thought I'd hear in this life. And I just kind of, if something doesn't quite make sense to me, I file it away. I file it away in the back of my brain. Right. And it could be years later, I have an aha moment. Oh, that's what they meant. Oh, right. that's why they did that. And so it's it's fantastic. So I actually wanted to return to this thing you mentioned at the outset, interested in counseling, holding space for people to process. Interestingly enough, one of the ways that, one of the means of monetizing my skills as I ventured forth uh, after defending in 2016 to support myself, and then it was temporarily uh, to sort of um, uh, bridge a gap uh, until I could apply for the right job type thing. And now I think it's more of a way of life, but uh, I do tons of one-on-one work personal development work. I've called it all kinds of things of their life coaching, whatever that means. Uh, these days, I think I call it spiritual counsel because people want more of a particular spiritual bent, something much more along the lines of chaplaincy, which I do for McMaster University. Um, and so I'm interested to hear what happened to that interest or capacity of yours. Is it part of your work? Is it not? Are you just, uh, is it armchair? Or do you just give it away? What, what happened? No. Oh, and you know what it is though, Raj, that's, I have never been asked that question. And I think it's a great one. And I don't think it's about me giving any wisdom away. It's about listening. That's therapeutic, mm, right? That's 80% and, and so of the job. In my, and, and so this actually has come to me in my most recent venture with women over the age of 80, um, who I kept hearing after, you know, okay, this is your, I go to people's homes or I go to the assisted living center where they're living. And in India, it's full of relatives. In Iceland, it's one woman usually in her pristine apartment. In California, you know, it's it's at this retirement community and the sisters of, of St. Joseph are in their mother house. So anyway, I go to their place and Oftentimes they have the questions if they want ahead of time. And we just basically dive into what they think is important, what their most important memories are, what their life lessons are. Just tell me what matters to you, you know, and, and, and there's different ways we get at it. And, and I think you get to a point in your life when you know that what matters to you is important. 
And I think that happens later in life. So there's, I, I have had no trouble getting these women to sign up and to open up because they know at this point at, at the edge of their lives that what they're looking back at, the way they look back at it matters. And so, so it's a process of not only sharing with me their stories, but seeing how their stories are, have significance and, and are worthy of sharing. And, and that process of, of that time together afterwards so many of the women said and i didn't even have to pay you <laughs> and it's not about me it's not about me saying oh and that you know that i see this as blah 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 i'm just listening and then maybe asking follow-up questions and that uh, itself yeah the, that's the, it. the 80 to 90 percent of what i do uh with people one-on-one -on -one is listening but not just hearing as sort of a tape recorder hearing the active listening somehow the consciousness around your own meaning making impacts how and what they share unconsciously of course but but what, what comes to mind is this the, the symbiosis between storytelling and meaning making that mm -hmm. they're they're really they're they're, they're 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 arriving at the significance of the story by virtue of telling it and um, I mean, this is a common trope within the, the epics and Puranas themselves, but the hearer, the asker always uh, is, uh, is so um, um, influential in terms of the story being told. Yeah. So without question, that, that listening is very active. Right. And I think in the case of older people, once, especially when you get way beyond, you know, so after age 80, it's not just the story as you're telling it that that has sort of kind of has this constellation of meaning around it it's the story you choose to tell so you've lived for nine decades now tell me about your most sort of memorable um, childhood moments who are the people that made the greatest impact they have to make choices and i think being in a position to make those choices also sketches out for them a sense of um how their lives have come together in, in significant ways. And then again, that are worthy to share. So um, yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's this last project has, has really helped me um, see that uh, vividly, which I'm so fascinating. We'll put links. Uh, there are, there, there are links in the podcast notes for all of the publications that we're touching on and passing in this, in this epic 30,000 foot view conversation that we're having. Tell me about Icelandic mediums. What's going on there in your oh research? What have you found? And what was that like for you? Yeah. The, <laughs> so, yeah. So the, the way in to that project was my friend Solveig. And, and the fact that I was going on sabbatical and had money and could um, hang out with her and her husband for four months in Iceland. So that's one way in. Um, and the proposal I put together to get into it was um, that I would use it in a book on comparison. So I'm getting into the issue of comparison, uh, which I know you're, you're also thinking about asking. Um, so the way in was how, according to Solveig, as she described it to me, <clears throat> the people who are um, working as... Um, Middles is the name, and I I like to use the word middle because I think medium has it has baggage, right? You know, you think of people with big hair and lots of money, and you know, just uh, like 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 God for Brahmin. Right? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, just <laughs> crazy. So so anyway, so these folks have a so-called gift, 
It's called Skigni Galva. Skigni is like clarity, seen into, beyond. Galva means gift, um, which is uh, both a gift and a curse um, that allows them to be able to um, see the future. They can, I mean, it depends on the person, it, that they can heal, that they're able to read people's hearts, in some cases, read past lives. Um, and there's more, there's more, but those are, you know, kind of the, the characteristics. And the reason why I ended up thinking, oh, I can do a comparative chapter in this book, bringing down, bringing the sacred down to earth, um, is because what they are able to do, what they claim to do, um, is very similar to what people with Siddhis claim to be able to do, right? And, and so here's the comparison. Oh, cool, they, they have um, earth bodily sort of practices that bring them to these abilities or claims to these abilities. But, but what's really interesting is how they get there, how they understand the getting there is completely different. So in the case of um, someone who is building Siddhi powers, it's, it's basically um, generated by a lot of discipline, you know, depending on your path, body, mind, you know, discipline um, and, you know, years and years, and then this is a sign that you've kind of broken through. It's a good thing. Whereas in Iceland, these abilities happen because you're born with it. It's intrinsic. So children, the way that the pattern almost always works is that you hear that children um, in certain families, and often it runs in families, see, oh, there's grandpa over there. And everyone's looking and they don't see anything. And they go, oh, so this kid is seeing stuff. They might ask, you know, what do you, you know, what does grandpa look like? Or, you know, what, what is he doing? You know, they, they might question him. This might be supported depending on the family, or it might be um, sort of shushed away. I don't think this is unique to Iceland, <laughs> but anyway, it's a, it, there is a culture to support. There is a culture to support it, but I do not want to say, because I don't want to orientalize or cutify is, is how my friend puts it, Iceland. Um, so there are plenty of people in Iceland who also um, disparage these practices or the beliefs in these practices, along with elves and everything else. So let's not do that to Iceland. In any case, there are people who have this, this ability or claim it when they're children, and then almost always it goes through a latent period, usually by a, you know, adolescence up until late teens and early 20s. And then the stories of these people that I interviewed who are part of this tradition say that that's when this ability comes back with a vengeance and it scares can I say hell? Scares the hell out of them. Oh, well, you can say anything you'd like. Oh, I can. Okay. It scares the um, shit out of them. So anyway, oh, sorry. Um, anyway, um, because they are well ensconced in a globalized modern world, they are aware that this could be a psychotic break, right? It's perfectly timed. Hearing voices, seeing things, um, having these feelings, premonitions, it's really frightening. So they are brought typically to two uh, sort of realms. One is a, a psychologist to check them out. This is, this is almost uniform. And another is to a medium to see what's going on. Is this, is this psychosis or is this um, actually contact? And the stories that I hear from both psychologists who don't believe in this and some that do, as well as the, the middles who talk about this, they usually agree. So, so psychologists who 
don't see this as a psychotic break when the parents bring the child or the teenager to them will say, I don't, I know this isn't a psychotic break. It's something else. I don't know what it is, but, it, but you are okay. So then they have a decision if, if it's decided they have this skigni galva on whether or not to try to close it down because it scares them or to use it. And in many cases, they try to close it down and it won't close or they try to close it down and they get sick. And so they have to use it or they decide maybe because they're in a family where this happens, they use it. So when they use their abilities, now I'm getting to the answer of your question, uh, to your question, uh, they join a community of people that support them in using it for a purpose, the purpose of healing. So this is in Akaneri, which is Northern Iceland. Southern Iceland, uh, Reykjavik, where most people live, it's more like spiritualism. So they have mediums who have, you know, these uh, sort of open seances, and it's very different scene. But in Akureyri, it's really about healing, has been. Um, so they do one of two things, typically. One is they are healers. They have patients come to their homes or whatever, or to the, the place where they all meet, the, the saulo, and they might do Reiki, they might just do their own free form, they might do reflexology, and they are able to diagnose and to heal. Um, and some doctors in Akureyri actually send chronic patients to them. Not all. Again, it's, it's a divided place that way. The others, the other path, which when I talk to people about who are on that path, it is a really hard path to get on because it freaks you out, is where you allow once a week spirits into your body. Um, it's called trance work. And you work in terms of healing, you work on helping these spirits who are discombobulated or um, under duress have conversations, work out their issues so that they can move on into the light is how it's understood. So that person who is the middle will move out of the way, their conscience will move out of the way, the body is inhabited by the spirit and the spirit gets to have this conversation. And it's very well orchestrated with the people around the circle, the spirits who are working with them. There's always spirits working with them, even if you're doing the hands-on healing. Um, and prayers are said beforehand. It's very Christian. People cross themselves, even though they're Lutheran, because there are a lot of Catholic layovers. Uh, so yeah, so those are the two paths. That's what mediums or mythos do. And that's why they have to. They don't get money at, for the most part. There are some that do. So there are some that are more conventional, but for the most part, they're not getting paid. Fascinating. Now, yeah. speaking of the potential parallels between congenital um, psychic ability, uh, supernormal ability, and and uh, uh, hard won uh, uh, attainments in these, um, tell us a bit about the comparison, or really the enterprise of comparison. Some of your work entails mm -hmm. comparison. Mm -hmm. What a, what a, the purpose, uh, the 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 the, the, the um, benefits, the pitfalls. You know, say something about the comparative enterprise. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. So I, this book, bringing the sacred down to earth that has these four chapters on comparison. Um, three of the chapters are basically coming from presentations that I'd given, work I'd done uh, that were never made it into books that I realized because I was going on sabbatical and was trying to figure out what to do with myself, that I realized looking them 
over is like, oh, look, I'm doing comparison. Um, so I have not, and I don't think I still do set out to compare. It's it's how I how I think we all think things through. I think categories are created out of comparison. You know, I know obviously it's a, it's a it has been. <laughs> Clearly in our academic world, comparison has been a very sort of colonizing en enterprise. Um, and, but I think going the opposite direction and only looking at particularities is first of all, I think impossible because we recognize, like I say, categories based on comparison. But I think there's an important way in which we can hold on to those particularities and note in the similarities sort of a humanizing um, process, you know, that we, there are things across humanity that are shared. It doesn't mean they're all exactly the same, um, but I think that's important. So I think that's a benefit, a really important benefit. Um, mindful always of, of power dynamics, always. And as a white person, this is something I, I really hope I'm trying to do anyway. Um, but it's fruitful. So, you know, now diving into this situation with all these women, how do you put a book together with interviews of 91 women all together, 124 interviews, four locations? How the heck? So part of that is to look at particularities, which are definitely the case, and, and how landscapes have informed their, their outlooks. It's fascinating to me. Um, and how within the themes that I see across the different uh, women's contexts, the similar themes in some ways distinguish differences, you know, so the comparison highlights differences. But in some cases you see, I think, threads across the different contexts um, that are shared, which is kind of interesting about human propensity when we are looking at death closely. Um, there's things that come out um, so that, that has been, this is the hardest, the book I'm working on now is the hardest book by far, not helped by COVID <laughs> in the middle of it all. Um, but because it, it is, it is basically comparative work, um, that does all those things, um, that sees the humanity and sees the particularity and appreciates them all and tries to ferret it all out. So, um, I don't know if that answers your question, but the, uh, I never have an answer in mind. It's always <laughs> about the journey. So no, that was brilliant. Um, one of the things that came up in your response that really resonates is this idea of, uh, patterns or for lack of a better term, archetypes of human experience and, in my personal work, both as a scholar and also, I suppose, as a counselor, uh, what has served me well is the the sort of the dual recognition of the inalienable uniqueness of that individual in their in their circumstance, uh, that uh, gender, age, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, bringing, et cetera. And yet to pan out and see, uh, shared experiences, shared problems, shared archetypes, uh, greater pictures, um, and to 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 not to have to focus the both because people come and for whatever reason within two minutes, I'm able to nail exactly what they're struggling with. Part of that's just hearing a bit of their story, uh, and recognizing patterns that this is your unique experience. Betrayal is not a new story. Loss is not a new right. story. 
Uh, uh, these are not new occupations along the lines of tinkering, healing, um, uh, dividing. <laughs> these are these are, and and when we look past the demographics and see really the these 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 impulses, these vasanas, if you will, then I think it's a very it's a compelling uh, mo with which to view the world. So it's it's really compelling to me. You know, uh, I think the first thing that I ever had published uh, what was it i think it was 2012 and it was my master's half of my master's thesis was published in jar the journal of the american academy of religion and uh, it was uh, co-authored with a with a with a, there's a, a professor of defense studies at the royal military college in canada who was keen on working with me because we had a chance conversation at a, at a restaurant in toronto and for some reason something clicked and he really liked what i had to say and how i was thinking so we did this 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 piece on uh, just war theory, which comes out of a Greco-Roman and particularly Christian context, but apply to an ancient Indian epic, the Valmiki Ramayana. Of right. course, you can, on one hand, say, you know, round pegs, square holes and all that jazz. And of course, they're incommensurate. But the idea of, or is it okay to kill somebody? That's not, that's not a yeah. unique, <laughs> that's not a unique right. impulse right. to your historical horizon or your culture. Of course, it'll be conditioned by all force. Of course, we are a product of our times, but we're much more than that as far as I'm concerned. Right. And um, it certainly is fruitful not just to say, well, look, the Valmiki Ramayana includes all six just war criteria, but it's encoded in narrative and in the conversations. It's not, this isn't sutra, right? This isn't a treatise. But but flip it. What is the Ramayana talking about that just war theory isn't talking about? Is there a principle of ahimsa at play? Uh, in the Western directory, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So right. I think I think if it's a respectful two-way street, right? I think that can be quite useful. But anyhow, enough for me. More no, from and you. I wanna, can I? I want to. You know, <laughs> yeah, let me please, add to please. what you're saying. Um, <laughs> when you were back talking about talking to people and and maybe counseling them through troubles, um, one of the benefits to seeing patterns and noting them like the betrayals, nothing new, for instance, is that it's reassuring. I am not the only person who, I mean, that is so important, right? You need to know, yes, I've heard your unique story. I hear where you're coming from. These are the different conditions you've been dealing with, but to know that you're not the only one is I think critical for healing, right? Otherwise, <laughs> you just- Absolutely. So, that, sorry, that, yeah, that, I just want to add uh, that. Absolutely. You know, yeah. this is your- you're struggling with this disease that's new to you, but others have healed from this. There right. is an inoculation right. or another. There, there right. is, you know, there's a vaccination. There, 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 there's there, there, this, you know, this, this is something that people have experienced and gone through and just, right. you know, honing in on, okay, what you're really struggling with. No, you're not mad at your wife. You're mad at yourself because X, Y, Z, P, Q. And you know what? A lot of guys feel this because, and all of a sudden, yeah. We've, pan, we've panned out from the um, just, just uh, from from the, the shackles of the the ego sense alone. Mm -hmm. We've tied it into a larger narrative. Yeah, this is why support groups work because yeah, all exactly. of a sudden, right. everybody right, in right, that right. room right has everybody in that room knows you better than your parents right. in the first meeting because right. of whatever you're seeking support. Right. And and I've never thought of it that way. So that's really helpful. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, caught me in a good day. I need some more coffee in this world. Let's see what I can do. Hang on. Um, you also teach, and I imagine uh, what I would glean from you know uh, from your 
personalities, you probably quite love teaching. You're probably quite good at it. But tell us a bit about the courses you teach and your experiences teaching. Yeah, it's funny because you listed that so kindly, you know, in this list of things that you might we might talk about. And I, I, I would look at that bullet and go, I don't know how I'm going to answer that. Um, so I, I, I never uh, came to uh, a conclusion. I, I, I think yes, I am a, I'm an affected, ex- effective teacher. But I also, <clears throat> um, uh, it's hard for me. It takes a lot of energy because I am reading the room. You know, I so I'm not. So that's part of it too. I'll just say it, it has nothing to do with your question. But yeah, but how the, I, but the, the, the the questions are always meant to be generative. So everything yeah, yeah, you say yeah. has to do that's with okay. everything that yeah. comes to your mind. Has yeah. to do with that question. Yeah. So, 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 so this is important. So you read the room. Yeah, See, that's, that's this is a different way of being. You're an extrovert, and you read yeah. the room. Yeah. I don't just. And so that's a ton of emotional labor. Ton of energy. Oh my god. You know. And I, I had a question that I wanted to ask you, and and maybe sure. Um, I won't ask it now. I might save it for later if that happens. But um, I always say to me. my students that um, my favorite thing to do is to go do ethnography and hang out with people and hear about things and be honored, you know, by, by hearing about things that they care about deeply. That's, that's my favorite thing to do, but probably no doubt, undoubtedly, the most important thing I do, which is also the hardest thing I do is teaching. Um, And I think, you know, teaching uh, religions uh, and to mostly, it's a pretty, uh, mostly, but not, I should, I wouldn't say maybe, but any very American, very mostly white um, group of students, a lot of them first generation uh, at Nazareth, they often come with political views that change like by their sophomore year. There's a, there's a lot that they're sort of taking in um, and a lot, you know, I've I've done works abroad. I've t- taken students abroad. A lot of them have never flown. You know, there's there's a you know there's a, a critical mass of people who are really sort of figuring out their place in the world as Americans. Um, and I just feel like what we're doing is so important. Um, so uh, I teach 101 religious studies 101, which is world religions. And I teach that every semester. It's a high teaching load. So I teach a lot of it. And then I always have these upper division courses that I teach as well. Um, Two of them are about India, women and goddesses. And um, (laughs) what do I call it? Hinduism, yoga, Hinduism practice, yoga, emotion, and devotion. And that is all just to get students into my class. (laughs) The word yoga. Listen, it's all about the marketing. (laughs) You need them in the door before you can teach them, right? But yoga is such a great topic to teach anyway. So I'm not lying. Um, And then I teach these other uh, courses uh, of interest, like the War of Peace and World Religions, which is so important uh, to go. You know, we do the standard, you know, uh, which is problematic, you know, five major world religions, but how each of them wages peace and war, you know, so important. Um, and then um, mysticism, comparative mysticism, where I include the important thing there is to include uh, not just the standard sort of Euro mystical, what we label as sort of kosher mysticism um, because they uh, write about it, the literate sort of world of mysticism. I include in that sort of framework, 
mysticism, which is sort of uh, done or studied through anthropology, which involves spirits and, and experiences where you, you can see patterns that are similar. I, I think it's really important to keep them in the same bucket um, because usually those folks, and this brings me back to Iceland, who were studying, who are having experiences that are connected to spirits or other entities are places over there. So the mystics are white and Euro and maybe Buddhist and maybe Hindu, but then we've got the people who do spirits who are brown and black and other. Um, and so to bring them together and to talk about them and, and talk about the problem of the way we've categorized is really important. But this is also why, just my plug <laughs> for my book, um, the Bridges Between Worlds book about Iceland, it's really important. It's an important book because it's, it's talking about these kinds of traditions that we don't hear about in white Euro contexts, middle-class contexts. Um, and uh, it needs to be brought up in that context. It's, I, I just think it's really politically very important. Please read it, people. Anyway, I, I, and I, I tried to write it in a way that's accessible, published by Oxford Press, so it doesn't get the kind of marketing, um, but I think it's really important. And this is why I think teaching mysticism in that way is important. And then, oh. then finally, I teach um, religion and healing, which is a really fun class because we usually get a lot, we have a lot of people who are in the health, health and human services uh, world as majors who want to take religious studies classes and usually can fit one or two in. So we get, I get a lot of them in the class as well as religious studies minors and some majors. We don't have a lot of majors, a lot of minors. Um, and we have these wonderful conversations about um, the body and disease and assumptions that we have culturally formed and um, trying to get beyond that. So that's one of my favorite, both the mysticism class and that one are my favorite to teach. What a fascinating, wide-ranging and fascinating uh, barrage of offerings. I have to say, those are all personally exciting. As an undergrad, I would probably have taken all those courses. Listen, if you uh, ever could use a Zoom lecture, I know a guy in Toronto who... Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, let's talk about that. Oh my God. I was looking, actually, it had already occurred to me. I was looking at your, uh, your all your work and thinking, oh, okay, Raj, hopefully um, we'll be friends at the end of this and I'll I'll, um, I'll hit you up on it. Absolutely. Um, no, the, just, I mean, a number of, I mean, clearly that, you know, the, the practice Hinduism, the yoga and emotion devotion, there's a lot to be said, from, you know, whether yoga proper, the stories about the poses or, you know, bhakti, the, the Puranas. I mean, there's tons there that's of interest. Goddesses in India, hello. Um, yeah. I literally wrote the book on the Devi Mahatmya. So right. uh, that's really cool. And then all, I love the comparative enterprise myself. And those are really, those are top three for me. Um we get spirituality, mysticism, cross-culturally, um, uh, ethics of violence, war and peace. I'm currently, what we did with the Ramayana, we're continuing with the Mahabharata and the Puranas for the uh, International Committee for the Red Cross, um, who, who, who mandates um, IHL, International Humanitarian Law. So I'm still currently looking at um, so content surrounding war and peace and Hinduism. That's fascinating. And also, I mean, the, the the helping healing counseling piece is something that I regarded as very much separate from my trajectory in in religion and the study of religion and it's it's hilarious I was doing a retreat at um, Colgate University a chapel house glorious spot lovely spot the 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 same anonymous donor who who, who set up uh, Harvard's uh, Center for the Study of the World's Religions is also responsible for for chapel house and I was here just a couple of weeks ago and. 
um, um, Stephen, the, the man who, who directs these, also a professor of Jewish studies, um, he was talking about me to another colleague, I think, who was going to attend and or thinking of attending the retreat. And, and he said, you've got to come, you know, he's a great scholar, he's a great storytelling, he's a healer. And I stopped him mid-sentence. I said, I'm, I'm, I have to, I, like, okay, I have a website. Okay, so clearly, you know, stuff about me that I haven't told you, like, you know, you know, I did the storytelling thing and the scholar thing and the retreats thing, but like nowhere, anywhere online, would you see anything along the lines of healer? Where did you get that from? Yeah. <laughs> and, he's, and he says to me, and it was fascinating. He says, all you have to do is be in your presence to know that. And besides that, the last time you were here, I heard you chant. And the minute oh. I heard you chant, I knew you were a healer. My goodness. This is from a, uh, <laughs> this is from a religion prop. It was just, it was wow. just. I was amazed, actually. Wow. It's hilarious. So anyhow, um, healing, mysticism, war and peace. I mean, there's clearly there's a lot of overlap and interest. So I, I would happily, I would happily pop it into a Zoom lecture at some point. We could talk about it perhaps once yeah. we're finished okay. recording. Great. Um, you you know what? I had um <laughs> we typically keep these about half an hour or so, but since it's a conversation where we extended it, so it's fine time-wise. But I did <laughs> I have a thousand more questions for you, but I did uh, promise you that I would pass the baton uh, because you also love asking questions, which I've only think I think I've only ever done once before on the podcast. So, okay, what would be your turn. Yeah. What would you like Bring to it ask? On. Yeah, and I have probably, I have more than one question, but I'll ask um, one. Yeah, sure, uh, sure. Of time. Um, yeah, it's okay. We're so good. in in the list of the things that you do, and and it, it covers so much, and I just think, wow, wow, retreats. And and you go to all these great places, you know, in Canada, U.S., Europe, Australia, and where else? U.K. U.K. Uh, and you you uh, do these podcasts, you give lectures, you teach, you publish. What of? And I'm I'm sure I'm missing things. Um, you counsel people. What in that mix of things do you find? to be the hardest? And what do you find to be the most important? Hmm. What do I find to be the most important? Uh, I feel that they're, they're all important in different ways, um, sort of for different purposes. Uh, what I think the, the most challenging for my temperament is academic writing. I love writing, I love to write. But for me, where I thrive on sentience and personality and patterns and interaction, shedding all that off to live in my, you know, thankfully I was given a good CPU in there somewhere, but, but, but mm -hmm. shedding off all of the other apps to get the CPU to, 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 to slice and dice ideas from voices of the past. But what really brings me to life is interpreting the story because the story lives and, and grokking a story. And I don't think I'd be able to be a textual scholar if it wasn't uh, narrative. I mean, right. I, I, that's probably a bit much. I probably could do a number of things, but I think what keeps that living for me is that, that there, there's an author there, there's a series of characters there, and they're with me even when everyone else is gone. And when I could tie the secondary voices into interpreting interpreting Indian myth, that's like one of my superpowers. But it's, it's not because of the CPU brain. It's because of um, the knowledge of people. Uh, and 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 sort of familiarity with story, but but I would say head down academic grind is the most difficult thing that I do. Um, uh, teaching is all. It took me some time to realize that all of the hats, to my mind, 
are worn on the head of a teacher in teaching mm -hmm. the acquisition and dissemination of information or transmission of more than information, energy, experience, bhavana. Um, that, that's what drives me. It's serving people through um, sharing knowledge, intellectual nourishment, spiritual nourishment, emotional nourishment. It took me a long time to realize that the one-on-one -on -one spiritual counsel was teaching people about themselves. Um, certainly teaching, teaching. I love creating courses and delivering courses, whether they're credit courses or they're more um, continuing studies or, or courses that are more really spiritual. I love the gamut of teaching from the most left brain to the most right brain. So uh, I think that's the most important thing I do in it. And really the podcast is about teaching the public what we do. Authors are teaching me, you know, I look at the books beforehand, of course, but the authors are teaching me and therefore whoever's listening in on what they learned about the world. Yeah. And so I would love to, if I could wave a wand, um, I slightly cringe every time I receive an email on the listserv about apologies for the self-promotion, but I think, oh my goodness, God, like, don't apologize for your kid. You've pumped this out. <laughs> this is some, this is something that you, you've spent how much time it's not to me. It's not you that's being promoted. It's what you found out for us. Yeah. What you've learned. Uh, well put. Like, this is what you're promoting. Like, look at, hey guys, look at what I found out. And I think that's the frame that really drives me. It's, it's, I live for education. It's took, taken me a while to realize that education comes in various stripes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you're unpacking myths. Is something you do not just with the the you know standard mythologies. You do that or stories, mm. not that. Sorry, stories. Stories, um, myths, sure. With people too, right? That's Ab that's absolutely a that's the common thread. Versus textual. I mean, you do that's, that on, on that's, several. That's that's the common thread. It's it's yeah. the 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 superpower for story I use in scholarship, but it's also when someone tells me their story, I right. hear the story they're telling, and sometimes I could even hear the story they're not telling. And sometimes mm -hmm. I could even point them to a story that they really would prefer to be telling. Right. <laughs> and, and so it's and the power I, of story. And I think that connection is really important because it, it shows the significance of, of doing that on different levels. And so it's not just, I'm, I'm going through the cobwebs to find this old story. You know, this is a, like you called a superpower, but it's something that um, is a useful ability that can be um, sort of, that can serve a lot of different ends. So well, that's Absolutely. Cool. Well, it's cool because it helps me understand people, but also it, one of the things I constantly rub up against is the story we're caught up in as a culture, the various cultural oh. stories we're caught up in. Yeah. Um, but you know, one of the things, so aside from the, the, the couple of boring academic books, uh, they're okay. They're not too bad. The, the fun book that I just wrote, that was more of a public book was called the stories behind the poses. Yes, and, I, yeah. Yeah. And that's, so part of what's fun with that is that, yes, it, it connects the namesakes of, of many of the poses with, you know, the actual pose, but also there, the stories are retold and interpreted in a way that isn't just about ancient India. And, but I think that right. is the power of stories to stand right. the test of time. Rama is not just about ancient India. Rama is about right. this tension between the inner and the outer, this tension between you know, sort of, you know, ethical deliberations, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, yeah. and I think one of the things that's really fun to do is teach people about the relevance of these ancient stories and why we tell them. It's not because there's no shortage of creativity in the human experience. And I think that's, 
probably one of the most fun things I do is storytell and interpret story. Like that's within teaching. That probably is the yes. most fun mode of teaching for me, yes. I'd say. Yes, me too. I, I tell stories and in the student evaluations, they almost always, not almost always, but often say, you know, more stories. So yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, <laughs> you remember things through stories, obviously, but, if it's, if it's a, attached to a narrative, I mean, that's why religious leaders well, told well, stories. But, but, so. but, but, but I mean, the scholars can argue till they're in the face, but the marketers know this works. <laughs> the marketers know how to hack our brains. It's through yeah. storytelling. Yeah, it's true. Is there anything else that you wanted to ask me? Um, Oh, there was. And then I've, oh, well, how did you get into, you know, so this whole, you know, religion, study of religion, how, what, what was, uh, what led you? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So I ended up starting an English literature degree in undergrad with minors in history and uh, philosophy, some social sciences as well. And, you know, I knew, I knew I wanted to teach, but I didn't know what I wanted to teach, but I knew that I did well fairly across the board, but I did have more of a flair for sort of the arts and the sciences. And I, I love language. I love literature. I love stories. <laughs> um, and, you know, it was a very, very difficult period in my life. There were all kinds of pressures and struggles and setbacks. And I just, my heart wasn't in it. So I, after a couple of years, I dropped out of school and I was working full time in an office and I was like, I made it. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm an office monkey. I'm a paper pusher. Great. I'll just work my way up in this American company. They were, they were doing, it was a medical company that was working for me. Yeah, it's fine. I'm fine. And then about a year into my stay there, they promoted me a couple of times. And then this manager says, you have a job that would pay you double. You're perfect for the job. We can't even interview you. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, why not? Well, it's an American company. It's, you know, their things are mandated from headquarters and it's not possible to be interviewed for this position without post-secondary education. And this manager said to me, this is going to hold you back for life. It wouldn't have mattered if you had a degree in, in Greek pottery, you know, oh. this is going to hold you back for life. So you may want to consider finishing your degree, whatever else you do with your life. Yeah. So I thought, okay, well, it's uh, September, 2004. And I'm sitting there in my dentist chair over my lunch hour because I'm at the oh. office. I'm in my dentist chair over the lunch <laughs> hour. And then I have a catering shift. I was doing some catering on the side after, wow. um, after work. And I'm, I'm going through the, the it's, it's, it's September. It's the year starting and I'm going through the UFT course calendar, University of Toronto and economics, crossing that out, you know, um, sociology, crossing that out. Like I'm, I just don't know what to pick. And then I discovered this course called Introduction to the Hindu Religious Tradition. I'm like, ah, this happens to be a period of my life that I'm spiritually seeking. Mm. And it's, you know, basically was a white person with brown skin and brown ethnicity who discovered later he had a very Indian soul because I, you know, I wanted nothing to do with, 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 you know, religion proper because it was superstitious, superstitious and, right, right, right. and just, yeah, it's, a, and, and, and on top of that, there was the cultural baggage of the diasporic experience of like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I thought, no, I would love, I'm, I'm, I'm spiritually seeking. I found a book on mantras and this is really cool. And I attended this one course and that course changed course of my life because um after that one course i got the highest mark i ever got i did well in university but i got yeah, i think an a plus or something and but i loved it i i was engaging shankara in my first term and engaging i don't know what in my second for the second term paper and i just this is more than just 
Because when you do, I did philosophy when I first came to university, but it was, you know, it was uh, Plato, right? Mm-hmm. Um, couldn't really do Indian philosophy in those days, you know? So I thought, I love this. This is fat, this spirituality philosophy. I love this. But I can only do this in religious studies. And so I took severance and I finished a BA, did a master's half time, took a year off, did a PhD, et cetera, et cetera. But the person who was supposed to teach that course was Artie Dond at the University of Toronto. And she oh, was yeah. pregnant that, she was pregnant that year. So a sessional instructor by the name of Jillian McCann got that course. Her good friend ran a yoga studio in Toronto, at which was uh, at which studio uh, uh, a phenomenal figure, this urban cave dweller, Mantriji, this Indian master, was teaching. And uh, when the course was finished, uh, her intuition was, I had to come, I had to come, I had to come. I came, and this man ended up being my spiritual teacher, and he mentored me um, day in and day out for a number of years and so that day that that fateful day in my dentist chair in 2004 <laughs> uh sort of fructified in both in terms of both my academic and my spiritual training awesome that's awesome thank uh, you you are so welcome and now now i have to recall that i'm not a guest on this podcast which i do i am sometimes for different podcasts i'm actually the host of this podcast and so um Thank you. I will take the baton back. Um, is there anything else about you, your work, your path uh, that you'd like to, to touch on? Uh, close? Uh, no, I, I just, you know, if anyone ends up listening to this, I would love to hear their thoughts on um, experiences of older people <laughs> and religion, if they have any, you know, I, I welcome, you know, because that project is not finished yet. And I, I, I'm, I have it all set. It's all set to go, but I, you know, it's not done yet. So anything anyone might want to send my way or ask, uh, but, or in, on anything else, but anyway, that in particular is still open book, so to speak, not done book. So, but no, Excellent. nothing else, nothing besides that. Well, we'll certainly put a link to all of your books as well as your departmental profile, uh, uh, in the podcast notes so people can contact you uh, about your your research how's that sounds good well thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today thank you raj it was very fun fun indeed for those listening of course we've been speaking with dr corin dempsey of nazareth university on a wide range of topics uh, until next time keep well keep listening keep reading Uh, And keep experimenting because you never know where the wind might take you. Take care.